10 minutes in the morning. Then, <laughs> for 10 minutes in the evening. This is a process that I picked up from Dr. Wayne Dyer. <laughs> Out of one of his books, I believe it was about the power of manifesting. And the whole idea about this exercise is that you, you know, create a vision of what it is that you want to manifest in the world, and you allow this vibration to come move up through you twice a day, energizing that vision. Well, in New Orleans, where I was, everything was fine, really predictable. I had a decent life. It was just that things were predictable. Believe it or not, in New Orleans, things can actually get predictable <laughs> at some point, you know. And so I thought, well, let me give this a shot, you know, and, and try this. And so, oh, my God, it worked like a freaking superpower. I mean, oh, the guy that owned the rooming house that I managed, I managed a rooming house on the Legion Fields outside the French Quarter. He decided to sell that rooming house out of nowhere, and he was going to give me a little extra, what they call lanyard, down in New Orleans if he got the, what he wanted out of it. And, oh, <laughs> this dude shows up the day it goes on the market, East Indian Man, and I sold that property for the full asking price. It's 2005, it's August, and I consulted with an astrologer who gave me an astrocartography reading. Astrocartography, if you don't know what that is, is your astrology charts splayed out over a map of the world, or the city, or the United States, or whatever. And apparently, my line of Jupiter, which was all about good luck, good fortune, and career, and expansion, went right straight through the state of Oregon. And I knew absolutely nothing about Oregon whatsoever. But I read about it, and it sounded like it was a virtual wonderland, and my god, there was frickin' medical marijuana! <laughs> so, boom! All of a sudden, there I am in Seaside, quite literally. 2005, August, I leave New Orleans three weeks before Hurricane Katrina hits. I'm on the beach in Seaside, and I'm looking out at this extraordinarily beautiful sunset, and I'm starting to take stock of, of where I've come from and where I've just been. When I first got to Oregon and I was in Portland, I made my way up to Washington Park. I found the statue of Sacagawea, and I threw myself down on my knees, and I sat there and cried. Because here was finally a physical representation of this extraordinarily guiding voice that was moving and, and working inside of me. Then I made it over to Mount St. Helens. Now, let me tell you something. If you have any doubts whatsoever that the Earth is an actual living, breathing organism, stand across from that motherfucker. All right? Ain't nothing like the power of a volcano to put you right side. Absolutely. And then I had made it out to Seaside, and I was on the beach, and you know, looking at 
you know, my past in New Orleans, my God, that place had such an incredible vibration. There was an energy in the ground that kind of moved and moved up into your body and it sort of sounded like jazz. And then I started thinking about Vaughn's Lounge on a Thursday night in the Ninth Ward with Kermit Ruffins and the barbecue swingers. The sound of the trumpet piercing your spine till it goes up and it explodes in your pelvis until you're just kind of undulating in this hot, sexy, sweaty, steamy sound of life and love and jazz. And oh my God, Halloween rituals in Louis Armstrong Park, voodoo rituals. Congo Square, I got to dance with High Priestess Miriam from one side of that park to the other side by myself. It was really extraordinary. I remember feeling that energy and that vibration, and I remember Miss Miriam coming up to me afterwards and saying, Baby Cher, I need to bring you out into the bayou, and I said, I don't think that sounds like a really great idea. <laughs> and then, look, you have not done Cajun unless you have danced barefoot in the mud on the banks of the Mississippi River to Rock and Doopsie and the Zotico Twisters playing Ico Ico on day. <laughs> so this incredible vibration is moving up, is coming up in the people of New Orleans and it gives them sort of a strut. They're always strutting somewhere like they're on the way to a parade or a celebration. Oh my God, it could be a freaking jazz funeral. Oh my, my God, from my mouth to God's ears, please give me a jazz funeral. <laughs> then I started thinking about how wrecked up and towed the fuck up I was when I got there in 1996. I'd lived with HIV since 1987, and by 96 I had full-blown AIDS as far as the blood work was concerned. The miracle was I got to start to take that uh, uh, cocktail at, uh, from the from the charity hospital uh, AIDS clinic, and I had an immediately incredible positive reaction because I was so treatment naive from all the other stuff. So I went to zero detectability and have stayed there pretty much ever since. I was also wait, brace yourself. I was also addicted to crack cocaine. In the beginning, I was up in the hood with the boys and the guns. And let me tell you something. The shit I saw, I saw shit that a white boy don't live to talk about. But finally, in February 26, 1999, I made a decision that I was not going to go into the millennium as being a ridiculous crackhead. So I began my process of recovery, and I have remained that way today. And you know, the truth was, there were so many people that came into my life working that job at that rooming house. You know, everybody has a freaking story. And if you end up in New Orleans, you've really got a story. <laughs> and it was just amazing because this compassion and love and family that the people of New Orleans showed and nurtured me. My God, my boss, Tony, this guy was a freaking living saint. He believed in me when I didn't, before I was even, even, even remotely starting to be well whatsoever. And then it hits me. I'm sitting there, seaside on the beach, right between the eyes, 
if I had stayed in New Orleans, I would have stayed in that house, and I would have probably been shot and killed. Not because of the water, because of being in the wrong place, the wrong time, and possibly the wrong color. And I just sat there as I looked out at that sunset with just such extraordinary gratitude. As I'm doing my little ohms for the evening, and from my vision from the side comes this freaking cat. It looks like Felix the cat who's had a couple of cocktails. And he's saying, come get me. And I'm like, who are you? And what the fuck is this all about? You know, and then I went back to it and, and let it go. The next day was going to be my first day into the wilderness, the magical, wonderful wilderness of Oregon. I was going to hike Tillamook Head. Now, Tillamook Head starts in Seaside, is where the trailhead is. And it's about seven, eight miles on down into Cannon Beach. And once you get into Ecola Park and Cannon Beach, a part of that trail is actually part of the Lewis and Clark Trail. And uh, it's also an area that I discovered was where the spiritual leader of the class of people were buried and whatnot. So, I'm here, I'm at the trailhead, I got my little outfit on, my hiking shoes, and I'm like, okay, this is your Mowgli moment. Now, I love Mowgli. Mowgli is like my freaking hero as a little boy. I mean, a kid in the jungle, he gets wrong with the animals. This is someone that I could aspire to be. And then it hit me, I thought, you know what? This might be a great, I, this might be a really good idea if I like kind of sang as I was hiking, and that way any kind of critters that might be around, they'll know that I'm coming and whatnot. So here I go. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities, the simple nature's recipes. Just the bare necessities of life. And you can't really sing as you're climbing a mountain. You know, I started to get out of there. But it was so extraordinary and, and so beautiful. The magic all around me. And I made it to that little surfer's beach in Cannon Beach where you see it from over a cliff. And I was like, wow. So freaking cinematic, you know. Then I got over onto the end of that that trail coming down into Ecola Park, that little burial site, and I was very quiet and very peaceful. I was tired. I was looking out at the sunset, was starting to come down. And I turned a corner and then oh my god. Big Daddy Elk standing right in the middle path with elk up this side of the cliff and elk down this side of the cliff. I have absolutely no idea how many of them there were, but it was a crowd. <laughs> and I stood there and I looked at him and he looked at me and I thought, what is it? What are you going to do? Sing. And then all of a sudden he goes, Rrr. 
in front of me the antlers and he comes up and he looks at me I can see the, the wet of his nose is just like right there and he walks off the path and then the other elk went off one side and down the other and it was like the Red Sea <laughs> Bravery, agility, and independence. That's what the elk means in Native American lore. And as a matter of fact, in the Northwest, the elk is known to be the protector of women, so that when women were taken or kidnapped by a warring tribe, there were stories about elk appearing to save these women and to bring them back home to safety. So I was like, well, fucking yeah, man, this is the spot. This is the spot to be. So even after I traveled all over Oregon, I ended up settling right there on the coast. Mowgli's got to have a buddy. You know, where's Baloo? Bagheera? Somebody. Mowgli's not by himself. So I looked for that cat. And I found that cat in the shelter, and he looked at me with about 30 little kittens jumping all over him like, where have you been? <laughs> the girls had named him Ashton at the shelter. He told me his name was Sam. Sam Ashton and I began an incredible life out there on the beach. And then I want to leave you with something. If you find yourself where things are predictable, try a little bit of the job box.